the word is neurogenesis. And just because we say, oh, that's the way I'm wired, there's nothing I can do about it, doesn't make it true. In fact, our brain is far more flexible than we give it credit for. And that's where the world of science is headed right now. And no one is proving this more than Dr. Tara Swart. And I'm so happy to introduce you to her and have her with us. Hi, Tara. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's lovely. I just saw you in London recently. We chatted all this over and now we have a chance to do this via Zoom, you in London, me in California. And let's just kind of start at the beginning. Neuroplasticity, what's happened even in the last few years? Because we're going to be getting into the subject of manifestation because it's it's actually terribly misunderstood. I mean, the secret had its value back in the day, but also most people the secret was they couldn't make it happen. <laughs> and so we're going to look at why it is that people were not really forwarding their life in the way they wanted just by putting a vision board up. There's much more to it than that. And I think it's really important to know the science behind it. So we're not going on faith. We're going on simple, mechanical reality of how the brain works, but then the magic of how the whole system works together. So uh, you take it away and tell us a little bit about neuroplasticity. Okay, so I like to say that we're not going on blind faith, we're going on faith in science, rigorous empirical science. And empirical means that it's actually been proven with data, so it's not kind of anecdotal. Um, so I think there's a real hunger in the world now to understand yourself and to take action based on actually understanding how it works rather than just doing something because somebody told you to. Yeah. And so that's gone in parallel with our increased understanding of neuroplasticity, which has been the most exciting advance in neuroscience in the last few decades, but it's just ramping up all the time how much we understand how flexible the brain is at any age, any stage, and any mindset. So we, we understood that our brains don't stop growing when we physically stop growing around the age of 18. We understood that that was an active process till about the age of 25. And then we knew that between, let's say, 25 and 65, that if you put in sufficient effort, you could change, you know, even things like people say, oh, well, that's just how I am. I can't change it. We started to understand that actually there are a lot of those things that you can change. But I think it's become even bigger than that now. It's you know, at a much later age than 65, and in a wider variety of things like personality, intelligence, emotional intelligence, physical capabilities, there's just so many things that you can change. Yes. And I think why this is so important right now and why so many people are interested in, quote, manifesting something new is because the world has changed. A lot of jobs that we were educated for that people were trained in have gone away. People are having not only having to, but being given the opportunity to kind of start fresh and create something from scratch even. I mean, the creativity really is uh, should be abounding right now, but there's so much uh, patterning and fear in us that we're not able to squeeze the most out of it just yet. And that's why the kind of work you're doing, I think, is so important. So let's just do a fun little story uh, about Phineas Gage. Share a little story with us about this man who had quite a tragic accident <laughs> way yeah, back. Yeah, I mean, I feel deservedly so. He's possibly the most important person in neuroscience. So he was... Um, a railway worker. So his job was to, to thump in the, um, the stumps of wood that went along the railway. And one day, 
that some, something went wrong and one of these stumps of wood just went straight through his forehead and, and kind of, you know, upwards through his head. So from my point of view, it went through his frontal lobe. And usually when we see changes in someone's frontal lobe, it affects their personality. But what was so poignant about Phineas Gage is that he changed as a person. The people that knew him said he's completely changed. But he kept these diaries and he had moments of insights where he said, I don't know what's happening to me. I can see that I'm behaving differently. There's still glimpses of me inside. And, you know, if that a similar accident had happened 10, 20, 30 years ago, there would have been so much more that we could do and, and understand from it. But at that time, and, and for a long time since then, we could only try to glean information about what the different parts of the brain do when something goes wrong. So an accident like that, or a brain tumor, or a brain abscess, or a stroke. Um, so that really started to make us realize that there are different parts of the brain responsible for, for different actions. And of course, it's become much more complex and sophisticated since then. But his story was a really, really pivotal one in neuroscience. And what, what that's bringing to mind is the brain is incredible in finding workarounds. If something go, can goes wrong in one area, other areas can also become uh, compensatory, just like the heart. I mean, they've learned a lot, so much in the last decade or two about what the heart can do, even with severe damage, it finds little pathways to work around and continue on. Give us an idea of what the brain can do, despite what we may have done to it or accidents that may have occurred. Well, let me start with a more, more shocking storyline than that, which is that a baby born with half a brain can live a completely normal life. So that kind of starts to show us the difference between a baby brain and then how that changes a little bit as we get older and that plasticity isn't naturally there as much. But the potential for that plasticity in people that aren't using it at all is it's almost like traveling around the world. If you've just if you've stayed stayed in the United States for your whole life. Imagine all the different countries you could go to. Imagine the adventures that you could have. And it's exactly the same in the brain. You can go to places in your brain that you haven't had to use because of your job or your social situation or the kind of sports that you choose to play. And you can basically reach greater heights in the areas of your brain that you already do use quite well. And neuroplasticity is all of those things. It's building on what could be a superpower. It's taking something that's you know, you're you're quite good at, but requires a bit of effort and potentially also taking areas where you feel like you have no skills at all and actually making those development areas something more usable. So what about the whole notion that we only use 5% of our brain? Because I think, first of all, the brain's terribly misunderstood. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between the brain and the mind, obviously, the greater mind, as we'll talk about. But when someone says that casually to you, oh, we're only using 5% of our brain, what does that actually mean? And why are we using our brains in such a limited way? So I have a sort of a bag of neuro myths that I really dislike, and that's one of them. So <laughs> here we only use 5% of our brain or we only use 10% of our brain. There's a movie called Lucy, which is based on the premise that we only use 10% of our brain. And she mistakenly ingests a large amount of mind-expanding drugs that allow her to use you know, all of her brain. It's not quite like that. So we use different parts of our brains at different times for different things. And so let me, let me like make it really, really basic, which is that the brain is a small part of our body weight. It's, it's tiny, it's just a few pounds. 
but it's the most energy hungry organ in the body. And it uses up 20 to 30% of the breakdown products of what you eat in a day. And when you're asleep, it is using up 20% of what you ate. So that already busts that myth sort of out of the water. Um, the amount of activity that's going on to, you know, the active process of falling asleep, of, of waking up, of everything that happens overnight, the cleaning of the brain. Um, it's just that when you're focused on a certain task, you would be using certain pathways of your brain. And we naturally all have things that we do every day and some things that we don't do very often or don't do at all. But it doesn't mean that we can't access all of the parts of our brain. And in fact, the more we coordinate using different parts of the brain, the more that leads to imagination and creativity and innovation. So it's actually really important to actively be trying to use different parts of the brain at the same time. Yet most people are just, we're, we're stuck. We, in fact, you've been there yourself. Um, you were highly, well, you are highly educated. You're a neuroscientist. You're an MD, a psychiatrist. And um, even so, as brilliant as you were, you were finding yourself stuck too because of your own belief systems that this is what you're to do. This is your task in life. And really for you, you had to learn from the ground up the secret how you begin breaking away from the things we're conditioned to do, we're told by society to do, and what our heart desires. And it seems that our hearts are weak right now. So many people, their hearts, they can't hear the heart anymore. And they can't hear those strong desire, emotions of desire anymore. So just very briefly, give us a sketch of what happened when you were totally burnt out on supplying drugs for mental conditions and transitioned into being a coach in this field. Yeah, I think it's worth saying that we're we're in one of those periods of life again, where we've all been through a very stressful time recently with the pandemic, and it's affected our mental health, which has perhaps dampened that ability to dream big. But I see it very much as that this could either be a mental health crisis or a spiritual revolution. And, you know, I personally had a point like that in my life where I had been a doctor for seven years, a medical doctor practicing mostly in psychiatry, although I'd also done medicine and surgery. And a backstory from my childhood was that I was told in high school that I wasn't creative because I wasn't good at art. So all of my friends are creative and a lot of them started to go freelance. And I remember thinking, that's amazing, but I could never do that. I genuinely believed I could never leave medicine and do anything else because medicine's a vocational degree. It doesn't really train you to, to do anything else. Um, and also that I had to be very, very detail orientated because if I made one tiny error on a number on somebody's blood test results, that person could die in front of me. So I realized two things after I made the change, which was that having people around me who had achieved what I wanted to achieve was very, very inspiring and told my brain that it was possible. So I took that leap. You know, there's obviously a very much bigger story around that, but I took the leap. I went freelance. I started, you know, working in very different ways to how I had before. And I also learned around that time that my natural way of thinking was very big picture, but I had forced myself into being very detail orientated because of the job that I was doing. So there was a mismatch in many ways. One was this firmly held belief that was wrong. And the other one was that I was making myself 
use my brain in a way that wasn't to the best of its natural abilities. Now, I'm very proud looking back that I could do that because, you know, I didn't realize how hard it was for me. But because it was hard, because it was against my natural skills, I became burnt out. Um, and it was only really when I changed, although starting afresh at, in my mid-30s was difficult, that somehow it flowed. And that's what I would love for other people to feel, that there is something out there that's your version of that life just flows. And I do believe it's about understanding what your passion is and following that. And and maybe going back to before that age in your childhood where somebody told you that you can't do something and trying to remember what it was that you actually wanted to do. Yes. Um, in fact, I did an event recently where I, I led this meditation. It's my very favorite one to lead because the group is so deeply impacted by it. And I call it my kindergarten meditation, where I take people back to when they were five. And it's amazing how easy it is for us to connect with what we loved at five. And then if you were to carry that forward to see how it was stomped out of us. Just innate things. And it doesn't mean you have to do them for money, but you have to do them for your own spiritual, not just growth, but um, joy and power, your own personal power. Yeah. And so, yeah, so here we are. We've come out of the pandemic. We're out now, but the world's changed. We've changed. People are a little more. We know that the uh, levels of depression have risen quite a bit. We know that we're thinking small instead of big. Um, so, now, let's get into the mechanics of it, which is repetition. So now maybe we've gotten into some patterns. Well, I just need to, if I can just get by and maybe get some more subsidy or whatever. What that's doing to our possibilities versus reversing that and the use of repetition in the positive. So it's really important, an important point to say that neuroplasticity can be for negative as well as positive. So a classic example is if you have a breakup and, and you're obsessing over it and dwelling over it and thinking about why it went wrong and you know what you could have done differently, then that's going to con continually embed in your brain that you did something wrong, that your relationship failed. And, and you know, we've all been there. But with everything in life, we are much more likely because of uh, the gearing of the brain, which I'll describe in a minute, to focus on the negatives rather than the positives. And so that's the first thing to understand that we will naturally default to doing that. And if we don't stop ourselves from doing that, then it's just going to make our idea of what's possible smaller and smaller and smaller. Because, you know, the classic line after a breakup when you've spent so much time thinking about the fact that it went wrong is, I'm never gonna let myself get into that position again. Um, so the reason that the brain works like that is a primary survival mechanism called loss aversion or loss avoidance. And so we are geared two to two and a half times as strongly to avoid loss than we are to gain reward. So taking that risk of going out there again and dating or changing career or you know pursuing a creative task is very scary for the brain and the brain will do everything it can to try to stop you. So the brain will bring up memories that are the most negative ones about the risk that you, you're maybe wishing to take. So the brain will say, well, remember the last time you started dating again, what a disaster it was. Remember the last time you asked for a raise and your boss fired you or you know promoted somebody else instead of you. And so that's basically um, the memory and emotion parts of the brain, the hippocampus and amygdala, getting together 
and bringing in front of you all the evidence that you should not take a risk that could be a threat to your survival. And to the brain, although we can absolutely override this, stability and safety are, that's that's what it's concerned with in regards to your survival. So because it is about survival, really, when it comes down to it, the brain is really naturally wired for survival, not to necessarily create and thrive. That is another complex of the greater mind and even you might say the infusion of the soul into it. But this is to protect the body and to protect life with stability and safety. But we're so much more than that. So go ahead and talk about the rest of it from the point of view of the gain, how, the, like you said, it's two and a half times more likely to protect ourselves than to allow ourselves to expand. So please continue. I love what you're saying. So I'll explain how that works in the brain and the body, which is based on um, a hormone called cortisol, which is otherwise known as the stress hormone. So that hormone has a normal range, um, depending on your age and your gender, that it fluctuates between throughout the day. The highest point being um, in the hour just before we wake up, because it's part of the waking up process. So we get a, a sort of spurt of cortisol to wake us up, and then it's between that normal range all day. If something acutely stressful happens, it will go above the higher threshold of that normal range. But what's happened recently with the pandemic is that it was just constantly at the highest level or even higher because we were suffering from chronic stress. And when the receptors in the brain because this hormone flows around the blood and the brain and the body, it crosses the blood-brain barrier. It comes from our adrenal glands in our lower back. When the receptors in the brain notice that there are high levels of cortisol for a sustained period of time, it immediately thinks that we're about to die. And so it goes through a checklist of what, are the re what could be the reasons that there's a threat to my life. And the number one reason, even though we've evolved so much, this all goes back to, to you know, evolution, the number one reason is starvation. So then we start to comfort eat. Then we start to, to put on weight, particularly around our abdomen. Interesting. Because cortisol particularly wants to store fat in our abdomen in case we're going to go into starvation. And then we can use that fat to survive for longer and find food. But what happens in the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was a few hundred thousand years ago, but or even a few thousand years ago. But OK, it's, this is like you said, this is an evolutionary process we're going through now. Yeah. I mean, and it still happens now. And it absolutely yeah. happened during the pandemic. Most people put on weight and it was that stubborn weight around your middle that no matter how much more you exercised, you couldn't actually shift. Okay, so let me bring something up because I, I'm exotically wired where my body doesn't create cortisol naturally. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think I mentioned that to you when I was in London. But this, I bring it up for a reason. The difference between life and death for me literally is fear. Mm -hmm. Because I don't naturally create it until I can get to an ER or whatever is going on, if I allow myself to go into fear, everything crashes very rapidly. I go unconscious and go into shock. If I can take what's going on, stay out of fear, and just tell my body to continue functioning minimally till I can get help, I'm okay. But literally, I have been able to tell the difference. So let's talk about fear because I'm I'm like a canary in the coal mine. I'm so sensitively wired. Let's talk about it for the average person and cortisol. Yeah, so cortisol co correlates with emotions like fear, anger, disgust, shame, and sadness. 
And so when you're experiencing any of those emotions, then your cortisol levels will, in most people, will tend to be higher. And so then uh, one of the other things that the brain does is it reroutes the blood flow around the brain. And it takes it into what I call survival mode, which is that you can wake up in the morning, you can do the primary tasks that you need to survive and care for your loved ones, but it will not give up precious resources from the blood for things like creativity or um, trust or complex problem solving or flexible thinking. Those things are not crucial to your survival at the, the time of a perceived threat. So ironically, when you need to be thinking at your best, your brain and body actually phys- physiologically won't allow you to. Which is interesting because everything in our world is ordered toward creating stress. If we're dialed into any of the medias, for example, Mm. right? Mm. Everything is about fear, um, engendering more fear. The world's a dangerous place to be. You're going to be ripped off. Oh, the banks are collapsing. You're not Mm. going to be okay financially. So the world around us is ordered toward creating constant fear within us. So now that's the repetition on the negative side we were talking about. I hope you're enjoying this video because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to insider commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks explain to us what we have to do mechanically, what we have to do to overwrite these programs of fear that are shutting down our capability for manifesting in a creative way. So there's a four-step process for that, which starts with raised awareness. So firstly, you have to understand what you've just said, which is that all the information you're being bombarded with is primarily negative, and that that's going to have a cumulative effect on our own natural um gearing to look out for the negative so so one of the things we could do is say okay i get very stressed out by the news so we i maybe i'll limit my you know reading or watching of the news obviously we all need to stay informed but we don't need to repeatedly hear the same bad news so that's one thing and then in that four step process once we've raised awareness of whatever it is that we need to change and it could be you know something completely different for other people the next step is focused attention which is looking gathering data basically to to back up your hypothesis that this is the way that i think sometimes or this is the way that i behave in relationships or this is why i never ask for a raise and and you don't change anything you just really um notice every time something like that happens. The next stage is deliberate practice, which is that you choose a new way of thinking or behaving that you use to overwrite your natural, you know, the the established way of thinking or behaving. Because in the brain, you can't undo something that's already there. You have to overwrite it until that new desired behavior becomes a stronger and more efficient pathway than the one you've had for your whole life. And the last part is, it's kind of, you know, across the whole arc is accountability. So we're not very good at holding ourselves accountable to major changes like this, because the efficiency of the brain will always want to go back to what's easier, which is what you've always been doing before. 
So sometimes you can use technology or journal, you know, like apps that monitor your progress or journaling to hold yourself accountable. But it's even better to have an accountability partner or a coach or somebody that, you know, makes sure that you keep progressing and you you don't give up when the going gets tough because it can feel for a long time like nothing's changing. But there's a lot of work going on in the brain. So you mentioned the difference between the mind and the brain. When people think about doing psychological work, like improve my emotional intelligence or manifest my dream partner, there's there's actually neurons and synapses connecting up. And, you know, this takes a drain on your body. It makes you more hungry. It makes you need to sleep more because it's just like doing a workout at the gym. And so there can come a point where you feel that you're more drained, but nothing's actually changed yet that you want to give up. So motivation and patience are a huge part of the journey. You know, there's that kind of really classic picture of a man that's digging for gold and we can see that it's one meter away, but he's been digging for so long that he's ready to give up. Yes. So let's talk about that. I mean, certainly there have to be studies about how long it takes on average and everybody's different. Everyone's brain is different, but on average, you know, say a person says, well, geez, I've meditated for a week on what I want and nothing's happened. So let's get real about how long it it takes to actually overwrite the old program. It definitely does matter what it is. So if it's something like, I want to get into doing some form of exercise three times a week, then I could see most people achieving that in a few weeks. If it's something like emotional intelligence, you know, improve my emotional intelligence or find my life partner, that could take nine, 10, 12 months. So it does depend on the difficulty of the task, but on average to embed a new habit in your brain so that it's, it's overwritten the old one and it's actually become, you know, embedded in your brain and now the way that you behave takes just over two months. Okay, interesting. So give it a good 60 days. Let's talk about what you just mentioned a moment ago, because that's a really good point. If we decide we want to go to the gym because, you know, we're ready for a fitness program to get in better shape, you know, and endurance, whatnot, um, that's solo. We have the choice over that. That's our own motivation and what we choose to do. When we're talking about attracting a, a partner in our life that's appropriate to meet the needs that we have at this time, you're, that's not solo. That There are so many moving parts and other players and streams and possibilities, timelines and such that another par- par- person or another potential partner can hop in, something happens, they get sick, they hop out, and then this whole unseen system of magnetism and desire is happening unbeknownst to us. Can you tell us what that looks like from a brain-mind point of view? What we have to do to sustain that, as you say, to bring something this complex about? I'd like to go back to something you said, which connects to this, which is, you know, I've meditated on this for a week, but nothing's happened. So the first thing I'm going to say is that it cannot be about sitting at home, creating a fantasy vision and not doing anything to make it come true. There has to be action involved. Um, You know, you can meditate for as long as you like, but your dream partner is not going to just walk through the door because you've been thinking about them. Um, So it starts with an abundant mindset. So, you know, the, the first barrier is whether you think that this can happen or not. And so you have to get into a state where you feel worthy, deserving, optimistic. Um, You've given yourself examples either from your own past or, you know, in your social circle that this is absolutely possible. 
Um, the second part is mag- what I call magnetic desire, which is that you have the positive emotion that is going to keep your motivation through potential periods of time where it feels like nothing's changing. And so that depends on you being so aligned in your thinking, your emotions and your gut that there's no wavering from that. So if it's, you know, if you think in my heart, I'd love to meet someone, but logically I may be too old or, you know, I don't know anyone that's available, then you're already starting to misalign on those. So it has to be, this is what I know I want logically. I feel very strongly in my heart that I deserve that. And that's the key. Yeah, it's absolutely key. It's, And if that's an issue, you need to dig below the negative thought that's kind of like, well, maybe that's never going to happen for me. You need to dig below that and understand what you believe about yourself that is making you think that that might not be possible. So, you know, it's it's hard work. It's really... Well, it is. It's complex. It's excavation of layers because we also have... Um, familial ancestral patterns and traumas that have been literally we that we've incarnated with. Um, you could even take it further and say past life trauma mm-hmm. or situations. Mm-hmm. And so getting to that clear point of magnetic desire where you absolutely believe you can have this, that you everything in you deserves to have this beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. Where would you say people go with that? Because this other part is, is sabotaging them. Do you go to some kind of counseling or therapy beforehand, during? How, how would you tell a person to handle that when they have sabotaging deeper belief systems, unconscious patterns? I think there's a bit of a spectrum for that. So for some people, journaling and introspection may help them to understand what's driving that. Um, but for some people, and especially if time isn't on your side, then, you know, having a, a psychotherapist or, you know, a psychologically trained coach could absolutely like accelerate that process. Um, and sometimes it's examining, you know, the family dynamics that were present in your childhood, your experience of of relationships, like your parents' relationship, the relationships that you see in the people around you. Um, but but really, it is about digging below the thought, the doubt that you have to what you believe about yourself that makes that true, and then creating a positive affirmation that's the opposite of that statement and repeating that so many times that it overwrites the negative belief that's that's existing in your brain. Yes, thank you for sharing that because this is not this is not as simple as doing a vision board. Although you and I have both done plenty of vision boards and you can have miracles occur. So let's take that into the extension of visualization, why and how it does work and also why and how it doesn't. So I actually call them action boards because again, I believe that yes, you can create the vision, but you you do have to be out there trying to make it come true, not just waiting for it to come true. But with visualization, it is very, very powerful in the brain because the brain doesn't like uncertainty. So anything new is a threat to the brain. So simply by visualizing the outcome that you want, you are preparing your brain for that kind of scenario so that it won't be as afraid of of that scenario occurring. And I have a few additional steps that I, I add for visualization that really help, which are that you visualize, you either look at your vision board or you close your eyes and visualize whatever it is that you want. 
you believe that it has already become true. And then you give gratitude for the fact that it came true. So what that does is gratitude is on the other end of the spectrum from fear. So love, trust, gratitude, they correlate with the bonding hormone oxytocin. And oxytocin and cortisol are in a balance. So if you are producing more oxytocin by giving gratitude, then naturally your cortisol levels are going to reduce, but also you'll shift from fear to trust and, and bonding, which is what oxytocin is about. So that means you lower your guard, which isn't a bad thing because often our guard is up too much, that you're warm and receptive to opportunities and you're more likely to take healthy risks that are likely to pay off to big rewards than avoid that because you're afraid of the potential loss. And yet people then paint themselves as kind of dreamers and fools because they dare go into a scenario where they say, where they can feel that this amazingly wonderful experience has already occurred and giving gratitude for it when it hasn't happened yet. So the logical mind, overcoming that logical part of the mind for so many people is such an ordeal. You have a very logical mind. Tell them how they might negotiate with themselves to give themselves permission to have the bigger dream? Because I've been through that process myself. So I'm not just talking about it as a neuroscientist. I'm I'm really speaking from experience. And the way that I rationalized it to myself as a scientist is that if I act on the basis that this really could come true, I'm more likely to behave in the real world and notice and grasp opportunities that are related to that than if I sit at home telling myself it's never going to come true. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay. That makes perfect sense. So now let's talk about the absolute need. If we're going to go into this dreaming, to this magnetic desire, to this process of creation, how important it is to allow our brain to be able to move into um a receptive mode, like just kind of goofing around, reading fiction, this sort of thing. What what happens to the brain when we set it free like that and allow it to relax versus being hypervigilant all the time? Lovely question. Um, so there's two parts to that question from the science. One is that when we indulge in creative activities, so either reading a novel, going to the theater, listening to um, certain types of music, then it actually increases the connectivity between the left and the right halves of the brain. So it makes that bridge between the two halves more active. Um, and as I said at the start, the more we can associate different parts of the brain working together, the more potential we're getting out of our brain. But then, um, so, and, and because you've mentioned the word dreaming, I just want to say that it, it can't be a, an unrealistic fantasy. It has to be something that you know, if you're looking for something in a partner, then that you have similar things to offer, you know, so that we're not all, all saying that we want to sit here and meet somebody that's just so like crazily different to us in our life that 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 then we're just going to create another failure. So it's got to be something that you can actually make come true. Um, and then there's another thing about the brain, which is super, super important, which is intention. So the intention with which you do certain things makes a completely different result for the outcome. So I'll give you a physical example first, and then I'll give you a more emotional one. So intermittent fasting, let's just take a really basic version of that, which is 
people that only eat between 12 noon and 8 p.m. So they essentially fast for 16 hours overnight. When that's intentional, it has all sorts of health, weight and longevity benefits. When it's because you're so stressed and busy and not taking care of yourself that you just skip meals, you know, you just forget to have breakfast or you don't, you know, you wait till you're absolutely starving before you have lunch at 3 p.m., the outcome is totally different. Interesting. Yeah. So if you then, another example of that is the difference between intentional mind wandering and daydreaming. So if you're sitting at the desk and you find that you just lost focus and your mind went elsewhere, that's that's not a very good sign about your brain. But if you do take the time to sit or be in nature and just let your mind wander, then what you do is you move the activity in your brain from what's called the control network, which is the task focus network, to the default network or the default mode, which is that open to possibility, flexible, thinking outside of the box, kind of more, more you know, creative part of the brain. And so it makes sense that if you go out into the outside world, whether it's to work or, you know, social setting, having had your brain in default mode for a while, you're going to notice things that you wouldn't have noticed if you're completely task focused. You're going to see patterns where they're not obvious. You're going to join the dots where you may not have. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I know a couple of people who I would call hypervigilant and won't allow themselves um, fiction, for example. You can only read something if it's going, if it's in the area of health and healing, for example. And I just find it interesting because the lack of flexibility, and this seems to happen as we get older, is the our possibilities and what we'll accept as part of our reality just keep narrowing and narrowing as we get our preferences set so high, we can't bear to operate outside of our preferences that we've created over a lifetime. Instead mm -hmm. of saying yes to life, can you just speak before we say goodbye? I mean, we have so much more to talk about, but I know you have a guest waiting to go to dinner with you. Um, so can you talk about what happens when we say no to life more than yes? We're basically, at best, we are plateauing in our life. At worst, we're losing flexibility and potential in our brain. So choosing to read a novel instead of a book that's related to your work is actually inducing neuroplasticity into your brain. I was on a podcast that is to do with books and writing, and one of the rapid-fire questions at the end was fiction or nonfiction. And when I said fiction, they were really surprised. I bet. I do read, you know, I do have to read science papers to keep up with my work, but in my own time, I only read fiction. I do the same. I have to research for my work, but I only do fiction in my spare time because of that freeing aspect. And honestly, I almost feel as though I learn more by reading fiction because mm -hmm. my whole brain and imagination and my emotions are engaged more so than a more text style book. Is that what you find as well? I find that. And then I have another specific thing, which is that I like to read historical fiction because then I feel like I learned something about yes. that period of time as well as yes, the story. Me too. I love it. <laughs> but I don't need to learn history for my particular job, but I, I feel like it's important to learn history to understand sociology and how humans work and why we're in the place that we are now. So, you know, I, th that's why I think that's important. But if I didn't think it was important, I wouldn't do it. And that's, a key thing for people to understand 
why doing some of these other things that they don't regularly do might be really important in terms of helping them manifest whatever it is that they're you know looking for yes okay so i know you've got to get going so just final thoughts because we'll come back and do this again later final thoughts on this conversation to give people the courage to just take off the blinders take off the no i can't do that and start jumping into this magnetic desire that we had when we were children i've got one question which i pose at the beginning of my book the source which is is your life panning out exactly as you always dreamed that it would if the answer to that is no, what's what's the actual net, you know, sort of what what's the reason not to try to do something differently at whatever stage of life you're at now? Indeed, why not? Why not? So one of my favorite books that was turned into a movie is called, in fact, it was a British fellow who wrote it about 10, 15 years ago. It was called The Yes Man. Jim Carrey made it, uh, ended up doing a film playing the character. The book is actually better. And there was something just so magical about this man who decided, who was an old grump saying no to everything and mm -hmm. just start saying yes, yes to everything. Anybody, anything anyone asked him to do, he said yes. And what happened to his life, I, I recommend people read it just for kicks. What happened to his life was amazing. It is a matter of saying yes and getting excited and scared and excited again. So I, I just, I love what you do. I love that you take the science and make it manageable for people, but make it clear. This is, these are the mechanics of how the brain and mind work. You can't bypass these things. No. Yeah. So I'll, I'll probably just add one quick little thing, which yes. is that I have a friend who her tendency was always to say no to things. And she, for one year, she said yes to everything. Yes. Um, personally, I have struggled in the past with saying no to things. And there's also a lot of benefit from going the other way. If if your natural default is to never make time for yourself because you're always saying yes to everybody else. So, you know, maybe just think about the one little thing that could change your life the most, whether it's saying no or yes or, you know, some, something else. And doing something that's different, just not continuing to do the same thing, just by doing that, you will induce neuroplasticity in your brain and then see what happens. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate um, you're taking the time to do this because I know it was a little bit pushed in your schedule, but I really, after speaking with you, and I also did an interview with you on Gaia, after a friend turned me on to your book, The Source, I thought, no, you need to get out there because I think you are the new voice of neuroscience. It's rational. It's not daydreamy. It's not new agey, yet it absolutely brings in, if one were to read the book, the magic of the entire spectrum of the mind and soul is brought into this story. We just didn't have time to go there completely today. So I highly encourage people to pick it up. So thank, thank you so, so much. much. Okay, Talk we'll do this again. Yeah, yeah okay. definitely. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Again, everybody, the name of the book is called The Source by Dr. Tara Swart. You can also go to taraswart.com and see what she's been up to, some of the presentations she's done, and to dive further into uh, Dr. Swart's work. So until next time, thank you for joining us here on reginameredith.com.